The idea for this episode was provided by Max. So thanks, Max. Shout out to you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And we are live. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling much better, thank you. Yes, we were both uh, a little under the weather for the past week. We were week. under the weather, yes. yes. And uh, how are you feeling with the level of seriousness that we've entered this uh, particular conversation with? I think it's important we do go into the seriousness. Yes. Are you telling me to be serious finally? Yes. Okay, get serious, Omri. Welcome to Spies and Lies, an espionage podcast delving into and analyzing acts of espionage throughout history, tracing the exploits of daring spies, covert operations, assassinations, hacking, secret organizations, and more. Co-hosted by me, Omri Rose, who spent his childhood living undercover, thanks to his dear old dad and co-host, Jason, a retired former spymaster of one of the top intelligence agencies in the world. And without further ado, let's dive into today's episode, Cold War Canada, Igor Kozenko. Ottawa, Canada. At 511 Somerset Street West, in September of 1945, Igor Kozenko scrambles to his balcony as employees of the Soviet embassy pound on his door. His former colleagues, who were now after him. Kozenko, from his balcony, pleads for help from his neighbor, a Royal Canadian Air Force corporal, who quickly rushes off, hopping on his bicycle as he rides to the nearest police station. Finally, the police arrive, sometime between 8 and 9 p.m., the Soviet embassy workers making themselves scarce. But the police are helpless to do much, as technically, Kozenko's apartment was Soviet property. Taking his family, Kozenko hides in another neighbor's apartment, but two hours later, a group of five Soviet agents arrive and break down Gazenko's door to his old apartment, ransacking it. The police return, arguing with the group of five Soviet agents, who eventually leave. As unbeknownst to all of them, there was someone else watching the building from the park across the street. A Royal Canadian Mounted Police officer, who to maintain his cover, briefly left the scene when the police told him to scram, only to promptly return to his post. The Soviets botched attempt to capture Gazenko, convincing him that there were merits to Gazenko's claims of defection, taking the news to his superiors. And the next morning, Gazenko and his family were taken into protective custody. But who is Igor Gazenko, and why is he taken into custody, and what's going on over here? Very interesting story. You always say very interesting when we when we start these episodes. Because very it is, interesting, this one. This is very, very, very well, uh, very Next time I'll say, ah, boring. <laughs> very interesting because it's unexpected. Mm-hmm. And I think it was unexpected from so many ways that you had to rewrite the, the rule book and, and, the, and the way you deal with certain aspects and elements. And we will hear what, what it did for each one of them. Well, we'll get into it, I guess, right? Right. Uh, no need to beat around the bush here. No. All right. Let's uh, let's begin with uh, the beginning. In the dawn of time, there was... No, not that far back. Okay. So, relations between the West and the USSR were rocky during the 1930s, but their alliance in World War II forged a bond and changed the perception of the USSR in many democratic nations skeptical of the ideological differences democracies versus communism, all those lovely divides that exist. Common enemies, of course, made friends. The propaganda machines of the new allies, of course, got to work and built support amongst the populations 
creating sympathy and empathy with their allies. Now, in the 1940s, the US foreign intelligence was extremely basic and essentially in its infancy. Roosevelt created the Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to the CIA. But there were no American spy networks set up in the USSR in the 1940s, or at least none that are known about because no one was ever caught or admitted to being a spy. Of course, we've heard about the Office of Strategic Services in the Virginia Hall episode, which was the agency she eventually ended up working for. The British intelligence was a little bit more sophisticated, but like the Americans, I don't know if they had such a vast, sophisticated network of spies in all these different territories. Well, we have to remember that this is the end of the Second World War. The focus of all the agencies at the time was against Germany and their allies. It was not against anyone else. Resources, manpower, intelligence, understanding, they, they were not there. It wasn't, there wasn't mm-hmm. an interest to do anything. Absolutely. I mean, it was, you got to stop the, uh, the Nazi regime in Germany and defeat and them. And that's what and- you do. So there was, uh, no one was thinking that they have to now look at someone else, especially not the, the first uh, month or two after the end of the war. Right. Well, you say no one was thinking, but you're wrong. Not because the Soviets the were thinking. They didn't think. They had its ready operations from before. That's the ah, comrade, we were deep inside plan. <laughs> what are you shaking your head for? Continue. See, the USSR already had vast networks of highly organized spy rings across the USA. There were 60 spy resident chiefs in 1941, handling about 1,500 agents. That number only increasing after the two nations became allies. Yeah with friends like these, right? The Soviets were keen to learn industrial, scientific, and of course, military secrets, forming a network of spies in Canada as well in the late 1930s. So, as we just said, maybe the Allies weren't thinking about it, the United States, France, United Kingdom, but Russia certainly was. Look, if you, have to, if you look at the, the, the environment at the time, most countries had sympathizers to the communist regime. Yes, that's true. Communism wasn't considered a bad thing at the time because they helped to fight against the Nazi Germany. When they became allies, the propaganda machines worked yes, to Yes, and there's, help there was that. always communist parties in most of Western mm-hmm. Europe, even after the Second World War, and even yes. people in high-ranking places in a lot of the countries that felt that Russia is an ally. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then the Russians, from their point of view, had a pool of people that they could then turn to or speak to. Now, not only that, they saw themselves as the patrons of the communist parties around the world. Mm-hmm. So from their point of view, the communist parties looked at Russia as the big the mother Russia and uh, people to get uh, assurances from and guidance and they were traveling and talking. And get their marching orders as well. That's before even, even we're yes. not talking about even... From, from an a, ideological from, standpoint. From an ideological talking. point of view, nothing to do with intelligence at this stage. So the Russians had already a background of and people they could work with and do things and uh, and they keep kept their relationship with them even mm-hmm. during the the war so for, for them network. it didn't have to start from the from zero like all the others so it was it was a completely different environment to mm-hmm. work with and that's why the big surprise when actually when he defected right so what happened to bring us to Gazenko fleeing and all this nonsense in Canada sleepy little Ottawa Well, in 1943, a new head of Soviet intelligence, Nikolai Zabotin, was appointed to the embassy in Ottawa, and there were agents sent along to go with him, including Igor Gazenko, the 26-year-old data analyst. Now, who was this Gazenko chap? Well, he was born on January 26, 1919, outside of Moscow. He joined the USSR military when World War II broke out, like many of his fellow nationals. And he was sent to study cryptology because he was a very educated and smart guy. He had studied architecture, and that's actually where he met his wife, Svetlana, before the outbreak of the war. And he was said to have a phenomenal memory. His classmate even saying that he never forgot anything, a name or anything. Sounds familiar? Yes. To several people that we've heard so far in this show? Yes. A good memory goes a long way. It does. What did you say? I don't remember. (laughs) He was an intelligence officer on the front lines in the war against Germany, and in 1943, he was promoted to senior lieutenant and traveled with his wife Svetlana to Ottawa to work as a cipher clerk, as we said. Now, at that time, the Soviet intelligence had all of its staff stay in a designated guarded compound that was called a colony. No one was allowed to really freely enter or exit, and their family members were there too. It was really rare to be allowed out. Gazenko writing that, The Soviet colony in Ottawa, 
ostensibly an isolated paradise in the jungle of democracy and a shining example of efficiency for the capitalistic nation to emulate, soon paled on me. Even as I breathed the clean, free Canadian air through the steel bars of my cipher room window, there would come from behind and around me the ugly sounds of bickering arising from rotten little intrigues and episodes that dug into the thin morality crust of the hypocritical USSR embassy. Well, you have to look at it as well from a different angle. Who was allowed to leave the compound? Now, he, in his capacity, had no reason to leave the compound. Mm -hmm. As a cipher clerk. Yes. So it was very specific diplomats who actually were dealing with affairs or issues outside of the Russian embassy were allowed to leave. So him and people like him had no reason, from the Russian point of view, to leave the compound. And that's how they kept them. And that's how they like to keep them. That's how they still do in some of these places today. It's You live in a compound that's in a restricted area. And basically, you have everything you need delivered into the compound. And you don't have to leave. For a security point of view, it's the right thing to do. From, sure. from a living point of view, it's not so good. On the other hand, then it makes it easier to follow the ones who do leave. Because you know these are the ones you have to follow. Yeah, so, absolutely. So sometimes you have to do of a mix. But in this case, we're talking about uh, 1945. 43 it, when he arrived. 43 when we arrived. But in 1945, the people that were in the compound basically didn't move out of the compound. Yes. And that was it. Yes. The people that were there were there, and it made sense. Didn't Only the ones to. that had to mix with other people went out. Besides, you will be corrupted by democratic nation going outside. Must be true to motherland. Now, the thing is, Gazenko had a baby, a newborn, in fact, that always cried. And it so happened to be that he was neighbors with Zabotin, his superior. And, you see, there were thin walls in the compound. And Zabotin's wife had a temper. And the crying drove her, well, absolutely batty. Now, unfortunately, there were no other apartments available in the colony. So Zabotin, fearing for his marriage and perhaps his life, hell hath no fury like a woman's wrath, as the bard said, he allowed Gazenko to relocate outside of the colony so that he wouldn't have to hear the crying. Moving to an apartment in the city, Gazenko suddenly began enjoying life in Canada, becoming discontent with Soviet conditions and all the USSR lies, as well as the spying on allies that was taking place. Because, after all, the Soviet Union and Canada, which was still part of the Commonwealth of the UK, were allies. He had heard that people were saying that war was inevitable with Canada as well. A truly upsetting thing. Look, you have to think about from his point of view. Here he is working in the embassy. All around him, there is a, a war going along. Canadian soldiers are being killed. Uh, they're fighting in the frontiers, fighting in Europe, fighting in, in, the, in maybe in other places. And what is he doing? He is involved in looking in and spying for Russia against Canada. So he, there's, a, there's a problem here. There's yeah, a moral problem. He was on the front lines before. He was there. Yes. So he knows what it's about. So, you know, it's, it's um, mixed messages coming out from him. Yeah. Makes sense. And then suddenly, in 1945, Gazenko was told he was being recalled two years early from what his posting was supposed to be. Now, this was a bad sign. He was starting to worry. Maybe he had done something wrong. He wasn't aware of something that he had done wrong. But if he was being recalled, that meant there were going to be repercussions. You don't get sent back early. So, logically, he was afraid. It was earlier than he was expecting to go back. The posting he was initially promised was longer. Well, everybody, all organizations promise something and then they never never fulfill it. That's, everybody should learn that. Sure. And he made a deal with Zabotin, his superior, who had helped him. Who wanted him. Who wanted him to stay. Who who reported back that um, his decoding skills are indispensable, meaning he needed to stay. But, you see, later, warnings arrived from Moscow about Gazenko wanting him to come back, worried about him. The only thing was, these warnings came in coded messages, and guess who was the decoder? Doesn't make sense that that would be done, because he can see it. Apparently this happened, and uh, Gozenko sees these messages and just doesn't relay them. But obviously, the noose is tightening around his neck. They want him gone, they want him back. But he didn't do anything wrong at that time. That, that, specific that he was aware of. That he knows, at least as we understand, he was not spying, he was not in any other anyone's books, he wasn't doing anything wrong, maybe he lived, uh, he had feelings towards the West, okay, but he didn't, 
he wasn't a spy. He wasn't collaborating with anyone. Listen, it could have very easily been someone in the office saw Gozenko come in and heard Gozenko. Oh, I was at the park. It was so beautiful. These Canadians, you know, it's not so bad. And then he goes, oh, this guy, he's losing his um, Soviet will. And it's relayed back. And then they go, okay, okay. who knows? We who don't knows? know. The okay. details are a little sketchy. Let us continue. As we shall. Gozenko, encouraged by his wife Svetlana, decides to defect. Svetlana advising, Go into the vault and steal every secret thing you can put your hands on, and change the combination on the vault and lock the door. It'll take six weeks for the Russians to send somebody over to chisel the door of the safe open to find out you've taken all these things. Turn yourself over to the Canadians. This is taken from his memoirs, so, you know... I don't know if she said exactly that or not, but that he's giving her some credit. For the memories, right? uh, probably she spoke in Russian. Okay. Probably. Would you like me to do a Russian version? No, no, please not. Okay. Privyet. Okay. On September 5th, 1945, three days after the end of World War II, Gozenko entered the Soviet compound sweating after the 45-minute walk there. His memoir saying, I knew the perspiration trickling inside my shirt was caused by more than the weather. Tonight was to be the turning point of my life and the lives of my family, from Soviet slavery to democratic freedom. Nice words to a Canadian audience. Very important to mention how many days passed since the end of the war, because it, the frame of mind of the leaders and everybody was on a different mindset. Mm-hmm. And then when we go to the next episode, we'll understand why. There are some versions that I've read that also say that there was another cipher clerk already on the way to Canada to replace him, which also prompted him to, to act. Anyway, going into Zabutin's office, Zabutin wasn't there, and Gozenko grabbed documents, hiding them under his shirt or in a briefcase in some versions, or having smuggled them out of the office and compound over the course of several weeks, yet in other versions. Gozenko is quoted as saying, During the course of about half a month, I examined the materials so as to select the best ones that would disclose the operative work, leaving the informational telegrams on one side. The telegrams which I wished to take out, I marked by bending over slightly one of the corners. That way, he knew which ones to take, either on that actual day or over the course of the weeks. Managing to exit the compound without being searched, he hurries home and gets Svetlana and the baby, going to the nearby Royal Canadian Mounted Police Station, But he's ignored by the officer on duty, who doesn't believe his story, his English likely quite broken as well. So he heads to the newspaper station, the Ottawa Journal. But the night editor isn't interested, suggesting to go to the Department of Justice, which Kuzenko does so. And again, no luck, no one on duty. So he returns home, restless, but figuring he won't be discovered until the next day. You know, legitimate, he has some time, they're not gonna discover immediately, you know who doesn't. So he survives the night and heads out to the Department of Justice once again, trying for hours to secure a meeting with a minister, which, if you're like me and have tried to get anything done in a government building, not exactly the easiest thing to do. And, of course, he gets nowhere, so he returns to the Ottawa Journal once again to try his luck. But meanwhile, in the Department of Justice, his story is kind of passed along, and eventually it's relayed to the Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King, who's hesitant to act, because, of course, Russia is technically an ally, And he doesn't really want to stir the pot. So what does he do? He consults with his allies, the US and UK. Well, I understand that actually his initial reaction was that he didn't want anything to do with it. Yes. And give him back to the Russians. That's what. Just just close it. Not interested. Mm Mm-hmm. As we said in the beginning, you know, there was new protocols had to be put in place. You know, it's not like you phone to the um, agency and you say, if you want to defect, uh, press one. If you want to send information, (laughs) press two. They were not geared for anything like that. And anyway, the... The Russians were their allies as well. Yes, there was... The war just ended. (laughs) The war just ended. The Russians were on their side. You know, why why did they get into trouble? And and what did Canada have and Russia have in common from the point of espionage? They had no... What what information could he have, really? Ah, the nuclear programs, because they were doing nuclear research in Canada. Now you're jumping the guns, (laughs) but that's not what we wanted. Okay, so dive in and speak about it. <laughs> well, no, you've, you've said an interesting point. Let's talk about uh, Mackenzie King, Prime Minister of Canada, because, you know, he was uh, an older statesman at the time. He had been through the war and, you know, it's just ended. And now yes, this. he wants to celebrate. He wants to relax. He doesn't want to, he knows there's going to be pressure coming from the Russians. He, do, he, doesn't, he doesn't want it. He doesn't need it. And of course, he wouldn't have thought that there's a huge spiring. He doesn't believe these things because it wasn't known or thought of at that time. And even if it was... Been, 
that's not, he's not, he doesn't have the energy anymore to deal with these things. He just doesn't want it. Let, let them take the man because he knows there's going to be repercussions, there's going to be problems. He wants to celebrate. He wants to relax now. He's just yeah. been fighting a war. He's had casualties. Yes. He has a lot of uh, other issues he wants to deal with. Mm-hmm. Have all the returnees of the soldiers. There's a lot of issues he wants. Does he want to deal yeah. with, a, with a Russian defector who's moving around in his country? No, send him back. We don't need it. But there were other people who thought otherwise, yes. luckily. yes. Gazenko, desperate, tries his luck at the Crown Attorney's office, attempting to become a citizen, but he's taken to the normal process, which, again, as you know, takes a while. All this he's doing with his wife Svetlana and a baby and carrying around these documents, and a clerk notices just how anxious Gazenko is, you know, after being told, could you fill out this paperwork over there and, you know, sign document this and you have your passport that, and I'm sure he was sweating profusely and quite, um, you know, on edge. And so this clerk places a call to the Ottawa Journal because he was raving about, you know, the Ottawa Journal, blah, 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 blah. And then that eventually passes on to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and eventually passes on to this and that and that. And eventually it attracts the attention of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Assistant Chief of Intelligence, who's looped in, saying he'll meet with Gazenko the next day. But that's still the next day. What's the hurry? <laughs> well, the hurry is... What's the hurry from the Canadian point of view? Yes. Well... The hurry is exactly what we heard in the opening. Going home, Gazenko is nervous, and then suddenly, boom, 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 the knocking on his door, the balcony, the pleading. Look, you have to understand something else as well. The Canadian authorities had nothing on this guy. They were not looking at him. They were not looking at they the embassy. They didn't know who he was. They didn't know who he was. They had no reason to look at the embassy. If they would have known that this is the guy that's doing, that's working in intelligence and is the cipher guy. There wouldn't have been any questions. They would immediately jump all over him and make sure he gets safe. But there was nothing at the time. Mm-hmm. So the Cold War hadn't begun yet. The Cold War just is just entering. It's just about to start. Just to start to start. But from his point of view, it's a lesson. You know, you want to know who's who. And at that time, no one really knew who he was. And for the Canadian point of view, if they would have known who he was and what his position was, they wouldn't have waited. No, no. But luckily. Luckily, he is eventually Luckily whisked he had away. A neighbor. Sometimes he had, he had neighbor. two neighbors. Yes. <laughs> he had friendly Canadian neighbors. Yes. Which, uh, power to the Canadians. Our, our composer is from Canada, and he's doing a great job. Shout out to you, Julian. Finally, Gazenko is whisked away and transported to a secret World War II camp called Camp X. He's interviewed there by investigators from MI5, not MI6, because Canada was part of the British Commonwealth, as I said, and by investigators from the U.S.'s FBI, again, because CIA didn't exist yet and domestic stuff. So the FBI and MI5 investigate him, and clearly, they find some very interesting things. Prime Minister Mackenzie King attempts to solve things diplomatically in the meantime, but his hand is eventually forced when a popular U.S. talk show declares on radio evidence that the Canadian government is holding a Russian defector who is revealing the existence of an elaborate spying operating in Canada and the U.S., as well as the U.K. But how did this information get there? Well, someone must have leaked it. Ah, but who could have leaked it? No one. Remember I mentioned the FBI? Well, if you're a history buff or enjoy history, you might know that the FBI was led at the time by a man named... J. Edgar Hoover. And if we know anything about Hoover, he was a little bit of a paranoid man who used all sorts of dirty tricks to get what he wanted, and quite effectively a lot of times. So it is likely that through the FBI interrogating, yada yada, Hoover got wind of this, understood that things were being dragged and didn't like this. He was a fiercely anti-communist, anti-reds kind of guy, and so he leaked the information potentially to this popular radio talk show host. This, of course, forced Prime Minister Mackenzie King's hand, giving permission to Gazenko to stay at the secret military base as the Soviets demanded he be released. But the Prime Minister Mackenzie King had made his decision, and he was standing firm in it. He would protect Gazenko. Meanwhile, our old friend Zabotin, who must have felt quite a fool for letting Gazenko stay outside of the compound, leaves for New York to find a ship back to the USSR. But when he arrives... He's found guilty there by a commission investigating Gazenko's betrayal and sent to a gulag for many years. Incidentally, afterwards, the Soviet intelligence would not allow its members to take their families abroad for a certain number of years. This has now been rescinded, you said? Yes. Yes, so there's different things there. Well, as I said earlier, the main thing was they was 
prefer to live in a compound mm-hmm. so they can stop them from seeing other things. It wasn't to stop the West going inside, but from allowing them, their people to see who are not West. trained yeah. to see the worst of the world. Sure, easier access. And you have to have families with you. It's well, in, in, nearly impossible in, in, eventually. If you, want, if you want to have a normal situation eventually, you can't just send people by themselves for three, four years as singles and leave their families. Well, you know, we, we were sent, obviously, on different things as a family to different places. That's what usually they do. Are you aware of any agencies that still don't let families go with them? Is it a thing that happens these days? It depends on where you're going to and what you're doing. So probably higher danger places. Let's let's leave it in that and just say that depends on the job, depends on the cover, and depends on mm-hmm. what you're doing. Right. But if you're going out as a... Official diplomat, you usually go out with your family. Yes, officially, of course. Yes. yes. In Canada, Gazenko gave Intel 190 documents worth of it, which would be difficult to stick down your pants, probably, if that's the way he cut it out. The documents detailed an extensive spy network in the USA, Canada, and the UK, perhaps uncovering hundreds of agents, also detailing techniques about sleeper agents, a concept which was new at the time as well as attempts to steal nuclear secrets. Let's stop for a moment there and let's talk about what he had and, and ask ourselves, why would a station in Ottawa, Canada have information about names or activities of agents who are operating outside of Canada? It's a good why, question. Why, would he have, why would he have that information? Where would he get it from? I mean, he didn't know about it when he left. Okay, so this is all information that was coming in while he was in Canada. Mm-hmm. So the question is, was there information circled around all the stations, number one? Second, Zabotin have a bigger role that he had to know what was going on and therefore our guy had a chance to read all the documents? Or things were sent in a way where everybody could see what goes on other places? So it's, it's not clear to me exactly how and why, but it seems to me a bit of a problem that someone sitting one place would know about all these things if it came to Canada. The other thing could be that they had to coordinate certain things, or because of his cipher capabilities, things were sent to him, and he ciphered them and had to look at them, and they were working together. So a problem from the point of view, from the Russian point of view, but if you look at it from an intelligence point of view, just shows you the importance of people in the position of a cipher, mm-hmm. or people sitting in the embassies in this sort of positions, how much information they would know even without running one agent. Right. And it's, um, from an intelligence point of view, from an espionage point of view, that's the kind of guys you want to have. Well, also, he did search for documents, so maybe if he didn't have or wasn't supposed to have access to certain documents, he was able to get it through sneaking around. Uh, Look, there was no computers. Right. Everything was sent by some very, you would say now, primitive ways, kept in paper, in files, doesn't make sense to have all that stuff coming that way. The one thing we have to remember is that Canada did have or was a part of the nuclear research. And so there was movement because of that between different nations and information back and forth and the nuclear stuff. So No, that's from the Allies' point of view. But you look at it from he's, not, he's bringing in information of what, of what the Russians know about. Yeah, but part, going part of the information he got was about nuclear spies stuff. That, but how he should not... There's no reason why a case officer in Canada will know about some case officer in England running agents there. Sure. Let's talk about Ellis, for instance. Ellis is um, supposedly an alias for a double agent that was in the UK that he knew about in Canada. How did this happen? That's a question. You know, I see what you're, you're saying. Why would in Canada you know about this when this information could have just as easily gone from the UK to Russia? Why did it have to go to Canada? Maybe people talked, you know. But how will they know the information? I mean, there's a lot of questions that I, I could answer, but I don't know, and I don't think everybody knows exactly what kind of information. There could be another theory, because we're talking about two things. One, what the Russians know and how they operate, and one, what the Russians wanted to know. Right. It's two different things, okay? The, well, we're Russians, also talking about a third thing, which is the information that he took away and was well, shared. He took, what he took away was documents, but he took away something much more important, in my, in my opinion, than documents. He took away methods cipher capabilities and how they do things now that information passed to the right hands not necessarily in canada allowed the mi5 and the fbi to decipher material that they might have had from their own capabilities against the russians 
and using what they now know from how they cipher stuff, might have found a way to decode the messages they got and they couldn't do it before. Mm-hmm. Now that, in my opinion, if they had that capability and that was on the books, that probably was one of the biggest assets that he brought to the table. And also the fact that it was just brought to the table because before this, it wasn't. This is actually, as far as I'm aware, the first incident where this kind of espionage and what we now come to know as the Cold War, this kind of stuff was happening. It was the first time we knew about it. Spies working undercover, stealing secrets, all this kind of stuff. That's the first time that the West, and I'm talking about the West like the big the big two, okay, UK and, and, yeah, and, and the US. United States, were aware that the Russians are actively looking to get information about what they're up to, and not only to uh, imitate it, but as well to get anything they can to uh, help themselves and to know what they're up to. Mm-hmm. And that was a waking call for the intelligence organizations. Now, from an intelligence point of view, it was fantastic. You know why? Because after the Second World War, the intelligence organizations asked themselves, okay, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? <laughs> what, what are we up to? Who's our enemy? What, 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 do we invent someone? Do we find someone? Do we tell them the All Russians? All these people could have lost their jobs, but Exactly. No. <laughs> do we say that the Russians are the big enemy and everybody's going to say, no, the Russians helped us in the Second World War. They're our allies. We can't spy on them. No budget for that. But all of a sudden, when they come up with this information, it changes the t- picture. You it just changes gave, everything. You just gave a lot of tin hatters out there a lovely conspiracy theory to work around now. <laughs> so, no, 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 no. This, <laughs> this is the reality of how things work. So now there's a new enemy. Now there's someone actually who can actually work on something. Something that you thought, now you have proof. You have proof, you have names, you know methods, you have something to work with. And that's what he brought to the table. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. It took five months before any actions were taken against the revealed spies, which included members of the military, a scientist in the National Research Council, member of parliament... Many eventually were imprisoned and executed. However, this crackdown had civil liberties implications because it was also one of the first times where wartime powers were used to hold and interrogate people without legal proceedings that was not normally allowed to happen, which, of course, now we know with the whole after 9-11 and kind of... Well, if you look at it from an intelligence point of view as well, you want to... You don't want to arrest immediately. First of all, you you have to build up cases. You don't want to reveal everything. You don't know what the other side knows. You understand that there's more that you don't know. You want to try and follow it. You want to try and follow the, the people who are running them. You want to see who else they're connected to. You just because just you have a name doesn't mean you immediately arrest them. Sure. So I'm not aware that it took five months because you have all of a sudden you have a hell of a lot of names and a lot of information coming in. And you have to make you sense of it. You want to do your due diligence. You want to check. You want to, in, you want to have more information. You want to have more, more info about everything. Mm-hmm. And you want to coordinate it because remember, Once one goes... 
the other goes into hiding. Well, you don't know exactly, and you, and we don't know how much how the reaction how the Russians reacted because they didn't really stop doing what they did because everything fell. They they not saying they didn't know what the guy knew. Well, they, they didn't, didn't know exactly know. what they he didn't took. know exactly. So, do you stop? Using the people? No. How can you stop using a people if the people are there anyway and they're sitting in a communist party or a member of a parliament or in a society that they work with? You still see him. And if, if you're not, you just have to make, you have to be careful to see him or how you do things or what you, the task you do with him. And just like that Royal Canadian Mounted Police officer sat outside of Gozenko's apartment looking in, sometimes if you have a name, you want to watch him without them knowing you're watching to see what's going to happen. So there's a lot of things that were going along because of this information that uh, that he brought into the table. Yeah. This was, as we've said, you know, the beginning of the Cold War, according to a lot of historians, certainly one of the most overt espionage-related Cold War incidences that occurred. And as we've just discussed, it really kicked off this whole intrigue of spies. Also, the public became aware of Gazenka as a result of these arrests, and even aware of this whole threat that the USSR posed. The opinion changing of the communist regime after the spy network was revealed, the US and its allies, Canada, the UK, France, shocked as they didn't really suspect the Soviets were spying against them. You know, they were allies after all. And the extent of this spy network and theft of intellect and ideas really was shocking. Gozenko would go on to write an autobiography in 1948 called This Was My Choice. And later, he wrote The Fall of a Titan, which won the Governor's General Award in 1954. There were also two movies made about Gazenko, and what's become known as the Gazenko Affair. The movies were made in the 40s and 50s. Also, he and Svetlana raised eight children under aliases of Czech immigrants. Every time Gazenko made a public appearance since the incidents in 1945, he wore a mask. A striking image, in fact, if you Google him. It's a... white kind of pillowcase, which evokes other images, unfortunately, but it is a striking image. Gazenko did not like being called a defector, which implied a traitor. He insisted on being called an escaper and actually filed lawsuits against publications who called him a defector or questioned his motives. He insisted that he felt loyalty to Russia, not the communist regime, which he believed had betrayed the Russian people and its Canadian allies. Gazenko fell out with most of his guards, because he was supplied a guard detail, of course, being under threat. One of the guards quoted as saying, Gazenko was not a true lover of liberty. He was a thoroughly ignorant Russian peasant who had no connection with the Russian intelligence service except as a cipher clerk. I have known him for some time and feel he is an unsavory character. So just so a, that's one guy saying a counter opinion of a grumpy guy who was guarding yes. him. It's interesting to see what different people think. On the other hand, in 1997, a book called The Canadian 100 about the 100 most influential Canadians of the 20th century was released, and guess whose name was in it? Gazenko, among those 100. Fearing Soviet action against him, Gazenko lived under aliases, as I mentioned, and constant security in a suburb of Toronto until he died in 1982 of a heart attack. So the Soviets didn't get him in the end. No. And he didn't see the fall of the uh, Berlin Wall, didn't live to see that. So, there you go. And that's Gazenko. Would you hire him? First of all, he wasn't for hire. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, but if you ask me about his position, this is a, a position that you would just love to have running for you or working for you. Well, if he comes to you with this information, you want it, obviously. This, look, the moment you defected, that's it. It's not, it's not the double agent. It's not you can't play games. Right. He defected. You didn't encourage it. You didn't know about him. He came to you. Talking about those days, I mean, today it was a different world that you would know exactly who's who and it would be a different scenario. But you're aiming for these kind of people because they have much more information than just who they meet and what they know. Mm -hmm. I mean, because he's he's the guy who gets the information. And today's world, you know, if you sit on someone like that and you're able to get, it's huge, huge, huge. Well, think of WikiLeaks, you know, it's. It's huge. I don't want even to go into it because it's so big. You know, your imagination can take you wherever you want. So these kind of guys you want. In 1945, when this guy walks in with the information he does, it's the best thing they could have had from their point of view. Because you think if they didn't, how many years would have gone by before they realized that the Russians were actually doing what they were doing and actually believed it? It would have taken them a long time. Yeah. So he allowed the Western world and Western intelligence to, to all of a sudden focus 
on a new target and to realize that they have to now protect themselves in a different way. Because well, they had only, to catch up. They had to jumpstart their engines. It's not only that. They have to realize as well, from a not only from an aggressive point of view, but from a defen- defensive point of view, that you have to do better vetting. Mm-hmm. You have to secure your facilities better. The other side is looking to find out what you're doing. There's an interest in it. The nuclear program, if you think about it, they said, okay, we're doing a nuclear program. Germany was our main target. The moment we got it, we, we finished the Second World War. Who's going to, who are we protecting ourselves from? Who's out there to, to challenge us? They didn't look at Russia as someone who's going to challenge them as a nuclear power. They didn't see it. From their point of view, okay, we're the big powers. They're not out there to do anything against us at that, that stage. All of a sudden, wait a minute. These guys are collecting information on us already during the Second World War. These guys are trying to... Pre-World War II, even. Yes, but, okay. Mainly Before, it's okay, but because remember, in the beginning, Russia and and Germany were were allies. Well, they had a... So, they had a, you know, we don't go into the whole Second World War, but, you know, it wasn't, they weren't uh, exactly friendly. But all of a sudden, they realize the nuclear issue, and again, nuclear, we know what goes on now with the nuclear issue, is a very, very sensitive issue. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, someone's out there to try and steal your information and and go ahead and do things. And you have to protect yourself. So not only do you want to know what the other side is doing, but you all of a sudden, as a security, you have to understand, wait a minute, I have to make sure that I'm protecting my assets. So it's a whole different game as well of Mm -hmm. what you do domestically. Yeah. And it is well for Canada. Because Canada realized, okay, we're the back door. We're the back door for some of this stuff. We're allies. We have information. They have to protect themselves. The allies would want them to protect themselves as well, that they don't have any leaks. Yeah. So the Canadians had, had to, to as well do, they had to do things domestically and mainly domestically mm-hmm. to make sure that everything is okay because all of a sudden they realize that in from Canada and in Canada things were happening. Yeah. Yeah. There were certainly a lot of lessons to be learned. It, it, it's interesting that it shows the power of the individual once again to shape and move things and how sometimes certain incompetence in individuals as well leads to some very dramatic things. You know, if you think about like Zabotin allowing Guzenko to leave the the colony, right? This would not have been authorized back by the uh, the home base by Moscow. This was a, an executive decision that he made without approval from anyone. I don't know. For sure, I mean, it was a scapegoat in this case to condemn him for it. I'm sure it was done before. It's not the first time. There's no, it's temporarily, you move them out. He could have said, you know My what? wife doesn't like the noise. Too bad. Come on, this is Soviet Russia here. What are they going to, too bad. Your wife doesn't like the noise. Here's some headphones, you know, earplugs. Send your wife back to Russia. Or switch with a different um, officer. You know, there's no available room, so have him switch. with. They're not going to let him leave the compound. If it was a completely forbidden issue, he wouldn't have done it. It was a way... And it's done, and you know that sometimes it's temporarily. They became more than temporarily. They wanted a an organization can always find a way to punish someone on something if they want to. In this case, they found a loophole. You allowed something that shouldn't have happened. Yes, no, happened. Just shows you that a complaining wife sometimes gets you into big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, how much autonomy should be given to who? To individual operatives in different instances, as much as needed. Because sometimes you can be bogged down by having to ask permission to do certain things. Look, usually headquarters or organizations are not um, are not the ones to go and allow you to do things that are a little bit further away from the regulations. Mm-hmm. If you ask a question, you're probably uh, your first instinct of the organization will be no, not yes. But it so, takes too long then to get to the yes that you need. No, but it, uh, in this case, he had a choice. If you're looking about just if you're looking just at the movement of the apartment, we discuss that. If you're looking about decision making about him, he could have moved out. He wouldn't have, but he was too sensitive. Second, he's still worried about their local intelligence, looking at him and seeing what he's up to. So, you have different rules that you go in and do things. It obviously changed the rules for the Russians as well. We looked at it at the West. What did they do to the Russians? Yeah. What What did this lesson learn? What did they learn from this? I don't know their archives. I don't <laughs> haven't seen it, but I can tell you, they've had to go into a, a crush a scenario of what was leaked, who was on the list, who do we see and don't see? Do we compromise our own people? Which people do we compromise? Where do we send them from? 
Who is going to be meeting the people? What kind of information are we going to ask them? What kind of information are we going to ask them to get now? Do we want to compromise things? From an organization point of view, an issue like this, when you have a defector from that knows so much and you don't know exactly what he said, it's a nightmare. And it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of tradecraft. And it's a lot of thinking, a lot of planning before you can actually go back to work like you did. Mm-hmm. If you even go back to work like you did. Because you, have, you realize that so many things have been compromised. Yeah. Now, sometimes... You have to change all your codes as well. You have to change a lot of things. But... You know, they're running, the, you said in the, one, in the beginning of the show, nearly 1,600 1, agents in the United States, right? Yeah. I means there's people have to see them. Mm-hmm. People have to meet them. Do you still meet them? Do they need money? Do they need guidance? Who's going to do it? Where are you going to come from? Who's going to do it? Because the moment you reveal who is running them, then they obviously makes it much more difficult for them to go out and do their work. Mm-hmm. So basically, you have to new new methods. Mm-hmm. That's from the Russian point of view. From the Canadian point of view, all of a sudden they realize their protocols are that if someone walks in and has to go from one office to another office and it probably wasn't even a weekend and there's no one to see him, there's something wrong. Yes. <laughs> so they have to set up something or have some kind of, of, of organization. Some sort of fail-safe. That thing like that doesn't happen again. So as well, from their point of view, they have to do some work that these things don't happen because it was a failure. could have been a miserable failure. Yeah. This guy could have been caught, brought back to Russia and sent back in a, in a box and that was the end, or if he was even sent back. But they got lucky. Yes, yes. So many, many lessons for everybody to learn. Many, many lessons. And again, the power of individuals. An individual choice affected the entire thing. Had now, if he, would have, if he would have asked before, made contact, probably, and you asked me what would I have done with a guy like this, I would have said to him, don't defect. I would like to keep him longer. Ah, keep him working so you can get more secrets. And uh, like we heard, like we did before with other agents. So sometimes it's useful to have agents working for... Of course you want the the agent to work. But but he was on the way out. This way, his set of mind or his mindset was, I'm not staying here. I'm not staying. I'm not going back to Russia. Mm -hmm. So you have to take the best you can. And they did. Yeah. They did the right thing, the Canadians. Do you think... It's important to empower operatives to feel confident that they can take initiative in instances that they need to? It's too, it depends on what initiative. There's certain things you can't do, and there's certain things you can do. You have to, they have to know what they can do and can't do. And the things they can do, you want them to do it. The things <laughs> they can't do, you don't want them to do. So it's, very, it's a wide range of, of issues here. And when they, when they get to a certain level of experience, you want them to feel like they can understand what they can do when it needs to be done. There are rules and regulations no matter what rank you are. Mm-hmm. There's things you do and things you don't do. Right. The thing is, do you have the guts to do the things you can do and still do them? That's the art. So basically, sometimes initiative needs to be taken to achieve certain goals. And when you're in the field and you have the experience... You're trusted to do those you decisions. You always have, when you have sensitive and complicated operations, you want to have someone on the field or someone on the ground who's able to take a decision, is able to analyze and understand what is the right decision to be made at that time, even though it wasn't organized or orchestrated or thought about beforehand. That's very important for any operation you do, because if you always have to go back to the headquarters, then it makes things difficult. Have you been in any situation where you've had to make an executive decision? Everyone who is in in these positions always has to make decisions like that because most times nothing works according to plan and there's always something that happens that you didn't plan. That's why you have someone there who can make the decision. Again, it's in the guidelines of what you know is possible or allowed to do. The thing is to understand you can do it. A lot of people sometimes don't do it because it's easier not to make the decisions. Mm-hmm. But that's not the role that you play. But in this case, let's look at the individual decisions that were made here that were very important for this case. One, someone made a decision, this guy is important enough, we want to see him. Okay. Second, he made a decision that he's taking, is not only coming with his words, he's coming with documents to prove what he is. Because his wife was right. He comes with the proof, not just with talk. Sure. Someone made a decision to put him you know, in a safe place and not give him back. Someone made a decision to go against the prime minister at that time. And yes, it's worthwhile to keep him and not send him back to Russia. W- what we do know is that someone made a decision 
a right decision to notify the prime minister at the time, the Canadian prime minister, that there was an, there's an issue here. It, it Relatively quick after it happened, it went through the channels, hey, there's a guy here, and someone made a decision, it has to go all the way to the top because it's sensitivity. So you could say, yes, it was the right decision to make. What was the decision? To make it go all the way up the top. Why? Because someone realized that this is this is major diplomatic situation for the countries. So the decision to bring it up all the way to the prime minister was the right decision. Mm-hmm. The decision that the prime minister wanted to make was probably the wrong decision in retrospect, but he didn't do it because someone else made sure that it didn't happen. Well, he consulted with his allies and eventually... And why did he do that? Because he made a decision as well. Wait a minute. It means the information they got was so sensitive. It was so important that he couldn't ignore. Yeah. Very interesting case. Very brave person as well. And thus, some say, the Cold War began. Yes. Ottawa's cold. But the and people, Siberia's cold either as the, well. But so, the people in Canada are very warm. Of course. <laughs> we'll end with a statement that Igor Gozenko made in Canada on the 10th of October, 1945. Having arrived in Canada two years ago, I was surprised during the first days by the complete freedom of the individual which exists here, but does not exist in Russia. The false representations about the democratic countries, who are increasingly propagated in Russia, were dissipated daily, as no lying propaganda can stand up against facts. During two years of life in Canada, I saw the evidence of what a free people can do, what the Canadian people have accomplished and are accomplishing here under conditions of complete freedom, the Russian people, under the conditions of the Soviet regime of violence and suppression of all freedom, cannot accomplish even at the cost of tremendous sacrifice, blood, and tears. Convinced that such double-faced policies of the Soviet government towards the democratic countries do not conform with the interests of the Russian people and endanger the security of civilization, I decided to break from the Soviet regime and to announce my decision openly. I am glad that I found the strength within myself to take this step and to warn Canada and the other democratic countries of the danger which hangs over them. Lest we forget, there is always danger, and we must always stay vigilant. This was Spies and Lies. Thanks for listening. And remember, always listen to your wife. And don't bring a baby to the party. Spies and Lies is a Grumpy Golem production with original scoring and mastering by Julian Dussault. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to share with your friends and leave a comment or review wherever you listen from. Or check out our Facebook page and join the conversation there. If you have any questions or subjects you'd like for my father and I to cover, drop us a message and we'll do our best to get back to you. Until next time.